The book of Jeremiah then in the chapter 2, please. The book of Jeremiah in the chapter 2 this evening. Now as we turn to our Bibles this evening, I make you aware of a little change in the schedule. And that is, tonight will be the last of our Bible classes for this part of the season. And a change of circumstances means that I can no longer be here next Tuesday evening. And due to the very short uh, time frame in which that change came about, it was unfair to ask anyone else to stand in. And so we conclude our studies for this part of the season just a little bit earlier than we originally planned, just one week earlier. Uh, But nevertheless, we pray that the Lord will bless us even throughout the Christmas period. And then we're returning, God willing, on Tuesday the 10th of January. So that's Tuesday the 10th of January. And so you've got the whole month of December off and one week in January too to refresh you and to lighten the load a little bit and to enjoy that time even with family and friends and indeed the many different activities within the assembly also. And so we ask for your faithfulness in those matters, but we ask also for your understanding just as to the change of schedule that we've just announced. But nevertheless, as we come then to conclude our thoughts for this part of the season, we turn to Jeremiah and the chapter 2, and we begin our reading then in the verse 1 of the chapter. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness and a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the firstfruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? Neither, said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through, and where no man dwelt? And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord. And with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isles of Shittim and see, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and who them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. We'll end our reading there at the verse 13, but it is our intention to consider much of the chapter in which we have entered into this evening. Now we're continuing this tonight to consider the man Jeremiah. And it is, of course, our goal to establish just who he was and what the Lord sought to do through him. That will better equip us then to place in its right and proper context the next of our Bible covenants, that being the final of our considerations, the new covenant itself. Our first point, as we considered it last week and the week before, centered upon the man, who he was, He was a preacher called by God, a preacher under obligation, a preacher with a burden to discharge a message. And from that spotlight that we placed upon the man, we sought then to establish the primacy or indeed the importance of preaching, not only in Jeremiah's time, but also in the day 
and the generation in which we live also. But this evening we come to consider our second point. And having looked at the primacy of preaching then, we come to consider the pain of betrayal. The pain of betrayal. The main purpose of Jeremiah's preaching, the main purpose of God's message to the people of Judah was to expose the betrayal that was evident in their relationship with God. Undoubtedly, the main subject of the message was to highlight and convey the real and the evident pain known by Almighty God as a result of that betrayal. This betrayal was evident in the account that we considered a number of weeks ago in Ezekiel in the chapter 16. How despite all the love that was shown, all the care and compassion that was shown, all the blessing and provision that was given, Israel as a nation had betrayed their God. They'd gone a-whoring after other gods. They'd given their love and devotion to other gods. The charge of betrayal then was not only laid at the feet of a nation corporately, but also squarely at the feet of the vast majority of individual Israelites who made up the nation. They who as individuals could testify very especially of the providential love, the providential care of a heavenly Father. But they who yet both corporately and individually had departed from following hard after God and from walking in obedience to His revealed will, His revealed word. Now notice again how Jeremiah's very first sermon plays out. We noted already in the verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. But then he goes on and says, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember. So immediately the Lord is encouraging the people through his servant to reflect on days that have passed. Memories that were dear to him. Memories that were important and significant in their history. He says, Remember thee the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the first fruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend, evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. He's reminding them here, is he not, once more of how it all began. Days marked by mutual love and devotion. There was tenderness. There was excitement. There was loyalty. There was devotion. But notice how in verse 5, the servant of the Lord is commanded to go on and say, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me? and have walked after vanity, and are become vain. God here outlines how it all changed. What was once known, once enjoyed, once treasured, is now known no longer. Where once there was a togetherness, now there is separation. Where once love and respect marked the characterization of the relationship, now only disdain and discord, where once loyalty was unquestioned, now betrayal was experienced. Notice the emphasis is at all times upon the individual. Yes, the individual makes up the whole. And yes, what is communicated here is most certainly a characterization of the whole, But nonetheless, God wants the individual Israelite to hear him. God wants the individual Israelite to grasp the sense of betrayal that he feels. We note that in verse 4. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Not only is this a message to the nation, but this is a message to the individual man, to the individual woman, to those who make up the nation. God wants them all to hear, to reflect upon all that is being said. 
Verse 7 and 8 then, we see how that God clearly articulates his feelings about the matter. He says in verse 7, I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof, the goodness thereof, but when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that do not profit. All that he had provided for them, all that he had blessed them with, all that he had hoped would come to pass as a result of his covenantal love, all ended in disappointment, bitterness, and tears. Now come down to verse 13, the verse where we ended our reading this evening, and we see how that God simplifies the charges. The rap sheet contains just two headings. The very basis of their prosecution then is articulated in a very concise manner. As this charge of betrayal in light of God's covenantal love is brought against the people, the prosecutor, God himself, outlines the basis for all of this. He says in verse 13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And so the basis of the charges is simply this. They have forsaken him, and then they have replaced him with other gods, with their own gods. Now, as we read on down through the chapter, we see that time is given to elaborate upon all of this. The arguments in the courtroom of God are made in such a way to prove all of these charges, to prove this overarching charge of betrayal, and to justify then the action that he is taking against his people. But nevertheless, The charges are brought and the evidence is provided. The arguments are made with incredulity. God is asking, why? Why? Look at verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is he a homeborn slave? Why is he spoiled? Come down to verse 17. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way? Israel, how has it come to this? Read in verse 18. And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee. Thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. Is it any wonder you've ended up chasing after other nations, giving your uh, pledges of allegiance to foreign governors and to foreign rulers, to saying that you'll rather stand with them than stand alone with God because you've backslidden, you've turned away from me, and it's all began because at one time or another, the fear of me disappeared from your hearts and from your minds. No longer was I the awesome, majestic, all-powerful God of heaven and earth to you. No, I was simply one who you had allegiance to and affiliation with in days gone past, but one who in this day, in this generation, was so easily replaced, so easily set aside, and now your love, your devotion, your allegiance is pledged to another. How has it come to this? Look in verse 21. I had planted thee a noble vine. Oh, Israel, consider all that I had done for you, bringing you out of Egypt, leading you in those days of wilderness wanderings, but then bringing you into that land, a land that flowed with milk and honey, a land where my blessing, my protection, and my presence was to be perpetually known. I planted you a noble vine. How then art thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? 
For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before thee, saith the Lord. Israel, Israel, do you not remember the account way back in the Garden of Eden? How that when Adam and Eve sinned, whenever they knew the knowledge of their sin and they got together all those fig leaves to try and hide their nakedness, to hide their shame, I saw right through it all. And nothing has changed, Israel. You can try to scrub up on the outside and you can try as a way to observe this and to do that, but through it all I see where your heart is. I see where your devotion lies. And all the scrubbing in the world won't do away with the marks of sin, the stains of sin that run deep. How canst I say, I am not polluted? Here was a nation who were so stiff-necked and so hard-headed that they thought to themselves that they could profess with their own lips they'd done nothing wrong. Everything was all right. Oh, yes, it slipped a little here, and yes, it deviated a little there, but they were still God's people. They were still the people who enjoyed the possession of God's land in that moment. You see, this is a message that we believe was given in the days of Josiah, a young king who came to the throne in a time in which God blessed the book was rediscovered and the groves and the, the, the altars that were made to the false gods were tearing down and even the very bones of the false prophets and the false priests were burned upon the altar. They were crushed. They were removed. Oh, in the outward appearance, things were going okay for Israel, for Judah at that time. Everything seemed to be just as it should be. But God wasn't looking at the surface. God was unconcerned about all that frantic activity that was occurring in the land. God was unconcerned about how busy they were doing this and how busy they were doing that. God was more concerned with the very thoughts and the intents of their heart. God saw right through the facade that was used to cover what was the reality of their hearts, of their lives. Oh yes, a verbal allegiance was given to the changes that were being instituted in the days of uh, Josiah and there was verbal affirmation of the right course of direction being taken. But through it all, they were a stubborn people. They were a hard-hearted people. They were those who had known no real change deep down within. And God said, you can wash the outside as much as you want and you can change the outside as much as you want and you can do all these things that you've been doing and you can do even more but if you never change the heart it's all for vanity it'll all come to nothing look in the verse 28 where are thy gods that thou hast made thee let them arise the time of trouble was coming the time of trouble remember it already arrived in the northern kingdom and they knew all about it and the threats were ever increasing all around them. God said, where are your gods you've made? All those wasted years harping after gods who could never respond to you, never apply to you. Where are those gods now? If they conceive thee in the time of thy trouble, for according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah, wherefore will ye plead with me? Ye all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. In vain have I smitten your children. They receive no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Oh, Judah, how did it ever come to this? We come to verse 31 and following then, the closing arguments of God's case against them are outlaid. The prevailing question is once more how. How did it get to this point? How did they let it happen? Look at verse 32. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. That in itself is one of the saddest statements we read off here. 
Here were people who had been so intent in their backslidings and so intent in living in Bypath Meadow that they couldn't even tell you accurately how long, how long it had been since they wholeheartedly followed after God. How long had it been since they had known the real blessing, the real evidence of God's blessing upon them? Real and proper communion with their God. He asked the question, just as a bride receives a ring to mark her marriage to another, just as that ring is symbolic of an everlasting union, a relationship that never ends, a relationship not easily broken, that ring's a mark of identification, a source of pride and pleasure. Can that ring be so easily forgotten? so easily set to one side. And yet, says God, that's exactly what's happened here. Verse 33, he describes them as professional or skilled adulterers. Why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? Therefore thou hast also taught the wicked ones thy way. Their behavior has not only been a negative thing in their own lives, in their own nation, but because of the insatiable nature of their sin, the unceasing nature of their sin, they were now having a negative impact upon others also. They weren't living as the lights and the witnesses that God desired them to. They were negatively influenced and negatively having an impact upon other peoples, other nations. Verse 34, we see that it's a shameless sin. Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. Here were people who felt no shame. People who didn't even try to hide the sin in which they were engaged. It's interesting to note here, it's the blood of children as highlighted as being a particularly gross public sin that they've been engaged in. This is a reference already made in verse 23 when it talks about, how canst I say, I'm not polluted, I have not gone after Balaam. See thy way in the valley, know what thou hast done. Reference to the valley of Hinnom, where the most wicked of behavior was engaged in is through the fires of Molech, the children, their own children, were passed as sacrifice to pagan gods. God says here, none of this is secret. It wasn't because I am all-knowing. It wasn't because I have an all-seeing eye, as it were, that this is known. Rather, the very dogs in the street know what's been going on. They might read all of that and say, well, I see how that the people of the nation, the nation themselves, were behaving in a way that was against God's law. You might say, I understand that the code of practice in place at the time, that being the Mosaic Covenant, remember that was a covenant, that was a law, a code of law, a legal framework with significance. It was something delivered on Mount Sinai as a, a veiled God descended upon the mount and spake unto Moses, revealing to him that by which the lives, the worship, and the behavior of the people would be guided. Remember how that we said that the Mosaic Covenant was effectively the first national constitution. It was legal in nature. It was binding in nature. It was comprehensive in nature. But here we see unarguable evidence that the people had effectively ripped up their own constitution. They'd run roughshod over it all. And this Mosaic covenant, remember, was conditional. God required the obedience of His people. If they were to continue to know the full blessings and the goodness that was theirs to be known as God's peculiar people, then they must continue to observe the law, to obey the law, to rejoice in the law. 
And so you could say quite rightly, we all agree that Israel were behaving in a manner which clearly violated the very terms and conditions that God had entered into with his people, that being the Mosaic law. But sure, what of it? Why did God not just punish them and get on with it? Why do we read this whole drama being played out in the days of Jeremiah? Why this whole accusation framed around the act of betrayal? And the answer is that God is seeking to remind the people. God is seeking to remind you and I of the seriousness of sin. Sin has consequences because all sin is against God. All sin is against the one with whom we have to do. One who has a personal interest, a vested interest in what goes on here on earth. And friend, tonight, don't think for a moment that by instituting the Mosaic law that God was absolving himself. He wasn't creating a situation where his interest was, by virtue of that complete and comprehensive legal framework, somehow diminished or diluted. Rather, the Mosaic law was but a codification of a clear and concise outline of all that mattered to him. And that's why it hurt when they broke it so easily. Let me put it this way. You can go out of here and you can blast home without a care or concern for the law of the road reaching 100 miles an hour between here and your home place. But when those blue lights go on behind you and you're brought face to face with the reality that you've broken the law of the land, then you will receive your deserved punishment, just as you should. But life will continue. Those who make the law will be unconcerned. Rishi Sunak will not lose a night's sleep because you have done that tonight. You won't disappoint him or ruin his day by what you do. You certainly won't put him off his next meal. And when it comes to those who are charged with the responsibility of upholding the law, well, the district commander of this place will not care one bit for your actions or for your behavior tonight either. And if truth be told, even the individual officer who books you in the moment Well, he or she will continue on with their shift and give little thought again to you or to your rule-breaking, except for the amount of paperwork that they have to fill in because of it. But not so God. Not so breaking God's law. And that's why I believe time and time again the analogy of a marriage relationship is used For as a nation, the individual people who make up that nation are characterized over and over again as the unfaithful spouse, then God is clearly communicating just how significant their behavior was and just how much he felt betrayed. Our shortcomings in life, our moments of regret and failure, They're all most keenly felt by those who love us the most. They impact most especially and in a long-lasting manner upon those who love us the most. And so too when it comes to breaking God's law. Sin in our lives, sin in the lives of His people, it produced a negative emotional response in the heart of God. And listen, there's no effort or attempt in my behalf to demean God or debase God here. I don't desire in any way to make God relatable to our human minds. But nevertheless, I believe it's an opportunity to remind us one and all that sin, our sin, grieves the heart of God. 
It hurts and it pains the heart of God. And just as much as it is impossible to comprehend or indeed rightly articulate the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of the love of God for us, just as it is impossible to accurately articulate the love that drew salvation's plan, to rightly articulate the mighty work of redemption accomplished on Calvary's cross as God demonstrated His love for us, just as it is impossible to rightly then articulate the plans that God has for us. Because remember, eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God hath prepared for them that love Him. But so I submit to you that it is impossible to comprehend or indeed accurately articulate the pain his heart feels when those he considers to be his own, those who have pledged their allegiance to him, those who have experienced the personal reality of his grace and goodness like none other, when they turn their backs on him, when they do that which grieves him, when they fail to respond to the pleas and to the warnings issued by him. And this truth of betrayal is entirely justified. It's entirely accurate, and it's entirely heartbreaking because it's a result of the people individually and corporately who should know better. And indeed, it's the result of those people doing exactly what they had promised not to do. How so, you may ask? Well, to Moses at the giving of the law, in Exodus chapter 19, the people had responded and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. To Joshua, in the days following the death of Moses, they said, All that thou commandest us we will do, according as we hearkened unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. And had they? No. Despite the obligation that the law placed them under, despite the requirement that they uh, were to pass on the teaching of the law to following generations, Despite all the blessings which were promised as the implementation of the law was realized, despite the evidence of God's presence and God's love toward them, despite even their own clear and unequivocal commitments made by them, Israel had, uh, Israel had sinned. And God wasn't emotionally neutral, He wasn't emotionally detached. He rightly felt betrayed. His heart was marked by pain, and his justice demanded retribution. Friends, we can't move on from here without remarking upon the striking similarities that are existent in our day. It's abundantly easy to point to the evidence all around in our nation. But what about the supposed church of Jesus Christ? What about the overwhelming majority of individuals who make up that church in its various manifestations in our land? What about the truth that in so many churches God has been forsaken? God has been replaced. What about the abundant evidence that even amongst those who take the name of Christian in our land, that there is a seemingly insatiable desire to allow the gods of this world to reign supreme in the churches? Conformity, popularity, relativity, all have become way more important than being true staying true, and living true to God's Word. And surely God says to us as those who profess His name today and to others who claim to profess His name, God says, I remember days in which your love for me, for my Word, was prevalent all around. 
I remember the days in which accurately it could be said that this was a Christian nation. And yet according to reports today, only 46% of people even claim to be Christian today. They claim that title. But surely we would all concur that far less than 46% deserve that title. But just as was evident in the days of Jeremiah, so too these same things have been evident in our land for many a year. The two charges are still relevant today. There's been a forsaking of the living and the true God and a replacing of the living and the true God with other gods. The marriage covenant that was instituted by God in the Garden of Eden was has been violated. It has taken on the appearance not of purity, not of devotion, not of loyalty, but rather it's taken on the appearance of lust, debauchery, promiscuity. Its main characters of one man and one woman have now been replaced by anyone, indeed anything, with two legs and a heartbeat. And all of this is celebrated and increasingly practiced in churches all across the nation. We too as a nation are stained by the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. And once again, this is protected, applauded, even advocated by the churches. And then we have the tsunami of the trans movement, a movement which eradicates without discrimination, ironically, all before it. And I warn you tonight that what the feminism movement never did, what the abortion movement never did, and what the gay rights movement never did, the trans movement stand ready to accomplish. And I'm speaking of the right and the freedom to, without fear of recrimination, preach and teach the Word of God. Undiluted, unfiltered, and unapologetically. But all of that is about to be overthrown because of the unabated advance of the trans movement. Only in the last number of months have evangelical organizations written and sent out advice to evangelical churches to establish, as their suggestion, to establish gender-neutral toilets and to ensure all children and youth workers are trained in using gender-neutral pronouns when faced with young people and children who battle gender dysphoria. That is being sent by evangelical organizations to evangelical churches. What reaction does all of this provoke in the heart of God? See, he remembers times whenever rights weren't spoken of. Whenever the typical person attended a church of some description... But today, all of that has changed and continues to change. What about the lives of the individuals who make up these churches? What about you and me? As His goodness, as His grace are recalled, is it but a conversation of the past? Or is the same evidence of loyalty, love, and respect still enjoyed today? God reminds us here through Jeremiah there's pain and betrayal. His heart is pained when those who have promised much deliver little. When those who pledge loyalty prove to be unfaithful. When those who walked close once walk in bypath meadow now. May God have mercy upon us. May God have mercy upon our nation. But you know, praise God, we don't have to end here tonight because 
Frankly, it would be a pretty disappointing, even depressing point to end our studies on for the season. But praise God, through all of this message, as Jeremiah delivers it, there's hope. And that hope is known because, thirdly, we come to consider the promise of love. The promise of love. We remark this before considering it in its totality. In verse 35, there appears to be an expectation of God's love from the people. It says, Yet thou sayest, Because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee, because thou sayest, I have not sinned. Now, admittedly, this was all based on the false premise that they were innocent that that what they thought they had done wasn't so bad after all, but nonetheless it confirms a degree of understanding in the hearts of the people in regards to the very character of their God. They knew Him to be a loving God, a merciful God, a God slow to anger. But our focus in this point is entirely upon God's love, His love for them. And his love for them was not a love that waxed and waned. It was not a love that blew hot or cold, nor was it a love that was ever able to be doubted or questioned. Evidences of his love are found right throughout the charges that have already been brought. As the case is outlined, then instances of his love litter the discourse and a gluttony of examples prove beyond all reasonable doubt the depth of his love toward his people, the unfailing nature of his love. In fact, it's accurate to go as far as to say that his love is the very reason that Jeremiah ever preached this message. It's the very reason that God here is seeking to hold them to account. Now, this whole relationship, remember, is being depicted here as a marriage. A marriage that once burned hot on both sides. But yet, as time progressed, a marriage in which one party, God, was consistently hot towards them, but the other party, His people, Israel, They grew ice cold and indeed turned their hearts completely away from him. But yet as this message concludes in the early part of chapter 3, we see that none of this has abated the passion and desire that God has for them. And so he says at the end of verse 1 of chapter 3, return again to me. He goes on in verse 4 to say, Wilt thou not cry unto me? Despite the overabundant examples of their sin, despite the many, many reasons as to why he should never take them back, still he was faithful to all he promised. Still he was willing to honor the terms of the Mosaic Covenant that he had entered into. And still he was willing to shower love and grace upon them. And yes, a sense of betrayal was known. But God is characterized here as the ever-faithful, the ever-loving, the ever-honorable husband whose arms are always open, whose invitation is always to come. Come home. Now, I want to speak just for a moment specifically to couples tonight. Perhaps it could be further defined as couples who have been married a number of years. Those who face the many pressures and the challenges that middle life brings. Perhaps some of what we speak of tonight is true about you and true about your marriage. Days in which love and passion burned hot on both sides. Days in which there was excitement a sense of adventure when everything was bright. Days like that can be remembered. But here, right now, things have changed. The romance has largely fallen away. Life has taken over. 
And in an ever-increasingly busy world, it all seems a bit mundane. Dare I even say boring. Adventure and excitement have all been replaced with schedules, with bills, with to-do lists, and with a monotony that just doesn't do it for you. Perhaps even the very person you married has changed. Appearances have altered. Mental health battles have emerged. Zeal and energy have been replaced by apathy and lethargy. There's an overabundance of early nights or duvet days. But to you tonight, I encourage you to let Israel be an example. Let Israel serve as a warning. For now isn't the time to give up or give in. Now isn't the time to forsake your spouse or find someone to replace your spouse in any area of your life. Not as your confidant, not as your advisor, not as your friend. Now isn't the time to weigh it all up and come to the conclusion that you got a bad deal. So you should walk away and find a better deal. Now's the time to follow the example of God in our story tonight. To be faithful to your marriage vows. To practice love, unconditional love. To show mercy to work at patience, to understand that because of who we are, we all fail one time or another. And we all change and decay. And no amount of injections, no amount of diets, or no amount of airbrush photos change the reality that appearances are altered as time passes. And above everything else, remember the reality that you got married in the first place not because of what someone else had or what they looked like, but because of who they were. And so don't pursue that temptation. Don't get bored with your lot. And don't believe the devil's lies that promise you that out there is a better life, a better wife, a better husband, or a better lover. Rather, learn from the perfect example of a loving Heavenly Father depicted here as the husband, and be faithful, be willing to forgive, And be ever ready to invest the necessary time and effort into loving your husband, loving your wife, even when it's hard. And even when perhaps lovelessness is only ever given in return, hold on, press on, fight on, and don't let go too easily. Aren't you glad God never gave up on Israel? Aren't you glad God never gave up on you? His promise was to love. His practice was to love unconditionally. His performance was to love everlastingly. Perhaps like God's charge to the church at Ephesus, it can be said of you, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love tonight. Perhaps like of Solomon of old, it can be said, his heart was turned from the Lord, his heart was not perfect. Perhaps like was said of the children of Israel, it can be said of you tonight, their heart was not right with him. But you know who it can never be said about? God. God's love for you, God's love for me always has burned hot. 
always been true and faithful, always been found in a variety of instances with no exceptions. His word that would come through Jeremiah in later times in the chapter 31 and the verse 3 remains true to this day. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. What he said, he has done. And let's be honest, in all of our lives, he's done more than we ever thought he would, ever thought he could. All because, remember, according to Isaiah, the place where we began this whole season in our church together, where it was anchored, all because we were precious in his sight. Friend, tonight, don't give up on him because he certainly will not give up on you. All around us in these verses and every sentiment and every line and every desire, we see a reminder of God's faithfulness. And does it surprise us? Not one bit. Because our God is a covenant-keeping God. This season, we've recalled his name, Jehovah. We've looked at his promise to give his people a land to call their own an everlasting possession. We've noted his commitment to the nation that they would know restoration, regeneration, revitalization. We've looked at David's faith in an unfailing God. We've learned how that in our loneliness, God is working out his purpose and his plan. We've also been warned that we must not impede the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We must allow God's Word to accomplish a work in us and through us. That His Holy Spirit provides us with counsel, comfort, and companionship. We've learned how that in the covenant to David, God promised to send His Son into the world, that the world through Him might be saved. We have noted His fulfillment of promises made to David in regards to Solomon. And so now we have entered Jeremiah's life and we have seen an emphasis on preaching because, oh, how Israel needed to hear and respond to faithful preaching in their day. And then tonight we've concluded it all with a reminder of the pain experienced by betrayal. But all of this is against a backdrop of his love. The promise of love. A promise he made to the Israelites of old, but a promise he has also made to the New Testament believer of this age as they come to a knowledge of His Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so are we surprised at all of this truth unfolded? Not a bit. Because our God is a covenant-keeping God. And He's the same yesterday, today, and forever.